0: Today we're going to be looking into 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a continuation of this spiritual battle that has been going on in chapters 10, 11, and now we're going to look at 12, and it's going to conclude in chapter 13. And there is a spiritual battle that is happening within the church at Corinth, and there are some men, false apostles... False individuals that have a different gospel, have a different spirit, that have tried to come to the forefront to some of the believers in Corinth and to rule over them, to bring them into submission, even by using physical abuse. In chapter 11, Paul is talking about if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in my weakness. That theme is going to continue as we go into chapter 12. It's a continuation of him boasting the opposite of what these men are boasting in. They're boasting in their physical appearance. They're boasting in their oratory skills. They're boasting that they can keep people in subjection to them. But Paul is boasting in his weaknesses. And so he's come under attack But remember, at the beginning of this letter, the majority stood with him, that what needed to be done in the church at Corinth, the majority stood with Paul. But there is still a spiritual battle that is taking place. So as we come into chapter 12, I want us to start by reading the first six verses. Laura, my beautiful wife, is with me today. And Alan, yeah, he's okay. (laughs) Alan is here with me today. And uh, we're going to be discussing this chapter and we're going to do it for God's glory. Alan, can you read the first six verses? Sure. 2
1: Corinthians chapter
0: 12, verse 1.
1: Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For I do not wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no
0: one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. When we look at these verses, he's saying boasting is necessary, I think he's talking about in the context in which he's dealing with right now. He's going to have to deal with these men that are constantly boasting, and it seems like they are boasting about having supernatural experiences and visions and things of this nature, and people are probably amazed by this and taken in by what they are saying. So boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. It's not something that Paul wants to do. I think he feels a necessity in this situation. He needs to do it, and he needs to go on and talk about his own experience or an experience of someone that he's close to, that he knows that it took place in their life. But as we go through this, he wants them to look at Paul by what he says and by what he does, and he goes back to the fundamental truth. I'm going to boast in my weakness and so we're going to look at this. I am assuming that these false teachers are speaking of all these visions that they are having supernaturally, and they're talking about this, and people are getting mesmerized by what they are saying, and he's going to go on and talk about his own experience or someone that is close to him, an experience that was supernatural. So, boasting is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I'm going to talk about this. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago. So as Paul is writing this letter, it's around A.D. 56. So we're looking back to around A.D. 42 to 44, 14 years earlier that this took place. Whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. If this is not Paul, whoever has shared this testimony with Paul, Paul has confidence in them and that they are a person that tells the truth and it is something that he is willing or he feels comfortable in relating to others. Now, personally, as we go through this, I think Paul is talking about himself. But let's continue. He says, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. What is the third heaven? When we look at the third heaven, normally we understand it in this way. The first heaven is the atmosphere in which we live. Beyond that atmosphere where the sun and the moon and the stars, the heavens that we call today, would be the second heaven. Beyond that and what we cannot see, a realm of the heavenly host. All through the Tanakh, the Old Covenant, you see the Lord and the heavenly host and we see this realm of heaven and this army and the angelic beings and the Lord and all of His heavenly host, where their presence is. That is not to say that God is not omnipresent. But Paul was taken up into that third heaven, and it was so incredible, he heard words that are inexpressible. And so this experience in which this individual is having, that I believe is Paul, is something that he's not even able to talk about. He was taken up into the third heaven, verse 3, and I know how such a man, whether in the body... Or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows. How this was able to take place, Paul doesn't even know. If it was something physically he was taken into the third heaven, or out of the body he was taken into the third heaven. But God knows. He cannot really explain it. Verse 4, was caught up into paradise. The concept of paradise here is really synonymous with the third heaven. As we look back into the Gospels, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, Today you shall be with me in paradise. We also look in the Gospels, say, for example, in Luke chapter 16. Paradise was synonymous with Abraham's bosom, a holding place that the righteous, those that were in a covenant relationship with God, were held in paradise or Abraham's bosom. I would say this, people see Abraham's bosom as a place known as paradise. When we look here, paradise is synonymous with the third heaven. And so, in verse 4, he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. And he's not saying that I couldn't speak, but what he saw, what he heard, what he experienced, he is not permitted to speak these things. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. Now, when you look at verse 5, it gives you the picture that Paul is not the one that had this experience. But I think as we get to verse 7, it makes it clear that he is that individual But in verse 5, what he is doing, on behalf of such a man, I will boast. But remember, what is Paul's theme? If I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. But on my behalf, on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. He's keeping that same focus as he's battling these false teachers. Verse 6, for if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish. For I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. He wants the Corinthians to look at him by what they hear, what they see, and have a relationship with him from the heart, and it's not based upon some supernatural experience that he is sharing with them. But what he what they have seen in the past and what they have heard from him, that's what builds the relationship with Paul, with the Corinthians. Scott, going all the way back to the beginning of the chapter where he says, you know, boasting is
1: necessary, though not profitable. And as we discussed the last podcast, chapter 11, he's dealing with this sort of attack, and it seems like they're really coming against his credibility in a lot of ways, you know, whether it's his physical appearance, his motives, things like that. So they're almost now attacking his spiritual experiences and this supernatural experience. Maybe they're saying, we've had these visions and all these things, and you know we can just assume that, but it seems like they're coming against his credibility. So when he's saying boasting is necessary, he's saying, I'm going to show credibility because they're attacking that. So this yes. is why I'm, I'm credible, but I'm not going to do it in the way that they are. I'm going to show you my credibility by my weakness and by what my weaknesses
0: yes. are. What you have seen, what you hear through my weaknesses, not in me telling you about these supernatural experiences. Now, these false apostles are probably doing that. They're talking about, oh, I had this vision and that vision, and God showed me this. And and people are probably mesmerized, some of them. And they are bringing them under their control by what they are saying. Their physical appearance is probably much better than Paul. Their speaking ability is better than Paul. They're attacking him, his motives. They're attacking him by saying he's strong in the distance when he writes, but he's meek when he's with us physically. So they're really coming after Paul in order to get some of the Corinthians under their control. And so Paul is saying boasting is necessary, though it's not profitable. And then he begins to start talking about this experience But what he wants to do is to put back into the minds of the Corinthians, look at my life, look at what I say, and let there be an understanding that through my weaknesses, I will boast. And then we come into verse 7. And in verse 7 makes me think that this experience actually was Paul because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Now, it's plural there. Here, he was talking about a revelation, but surpassing greatness of the revelations. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Now, the other individuals are exalting themselves by telling the Corinthians of these revelations that they have had, but God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh to keep him from exalting in himself. When a person has an experience of a vision or a revelation from God, they set themselves apart by that because the normal person, the follower of Christ, has never had that experience. And so Paul had an experience that was inexpressible. He's not even permitted to speak what took place. And so you can see Paul, well, I've had an experience that nobody else probably has ever had. I don't know of anybody else had an experience like this, but God caused Paul to have a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. So God is allowing something, a thorn in the flesh, to come into Paul's life, whatever it is, and people get into arguments concerning what this is. And some say it was his eyesight. Some say it was a demonic spirit that was attacking him and coming against him, trying to oppress him. Probably contextually, I would say it's an individual or individuals that have come and they're attacking Paul. And Paul is going and praying, God, take this individual away, deal with them, bring your judgment upon them. But it's not happening. God is allowing it to continue. Here, That thorn in the flesh, though, Paul understands is to keep Paul from exalting himself.
2: I just was wondering what you thought about the concept of when we pray for some type of healing or deliverance from persecution or something, some people will say at the end, but God, thy will be done. Other people approach it, I'm going to be healed because God is a healer and with such determination and confidence. And where as believers should we fall? within
0: that. I think two truths can exist at the same time, seem opposite, both be truth and both glorify God. When I pray for someone that is sick, I pray in faith, I pray in a way that I want to see them healed, and I pray in the name of Jesus and His authority, His power, and we want to see that person healed by God. And in the same way, I understand that not everything that I pray for is always going to be determined by myself and my faith and these kinds of outcomes by the way that I am praying. There is the will of God. There is a bigger picture to my individual prayer sometimes that I don't even know the right way to pray sometimes. And so in this case, surely Paul is praying, God, take this away. He's praying with an intensity, and I believe it's an individual or individuals as a group that is coming against him It's a thorn in the flesh, and I can see Paul coming and saying, God, take this away. This is an obstacle to the gospel. It is something that has to be gone from the Corinthians or whatever it is, and God is saying, my grace is sufficient for you. We're going to get to that in the next verse, but he's allowing this to go on so that Paul will not exalt himself. You see, these revelations in which Paul has received, you could start exalting yourself, thinking that you're a um, spiritual Superman and that you can do anything and there's not anybody that's on the same level as you. And so he's got this thorn in the flesh and he's praying and God's not removing it. And so I would say this, Lord, that God's will... Is something that I don't ever have to be afraid of. I don't have a problem in praying with God's will. It's not a lack of faith to pray, God, let your will be done. So I don't think the two have to be in contrast to each other. So we do pray for healing. We do pray for things to take place. We pray in faith. If we pray in that way, I believe God honors the prayer of faith. And at the same time, God's will overrides everything within our lives, and we should want the will of God. Now Paul wanted this gone, but God allowed it to stay, and that was for his own benefit. It may not seem like it at that time. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Three times he went to prayer. Three times he's asking God. All three times it didn't take place. Now, think about the ministry of Paul. At Ephesus, he was there for two years and three months, everyone that was coming. Most, when we look at that in Acts chapter 19, people were being healed as they came in contact with his shadow. People were taking handkerchiefs and sending it, and people were getting healed because it had been something that was connected to Paul. This man knew the power of God. He saw God using him, but in this situation, he's praying and God is saying no. So again, two truths can exist at the same time, seem to be opposite, but both of them are truth and both of them are for our benefit, and this was for Paul's benefit. Three times he prayed and God said no, and he said to me, "'My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness.'" Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So by God not allowing this to be taken away, whatever it is, he's in a weakened state and he has to rely upon the power of Christ that's within him. And in that weakness, we become more dependent upon God. We become more dependent upon His guidance, His direction, His power. And so God is saying, no, but for power is perfected in weakness, though. He's going to have to trust God more and more. If it's these false teachers, is the thorn in the flesh, and they're not being taken away, he's going to have to trust God with everything within the church at Corinth, and he's going to have to rely upon it, and he's going to have to face these battles. He's got to go to Corinth And he's got to face these men, and it's a spiritual battle that is going on.
2: I remember at the end of your father's life, him saying that this is actually the greatest point in my life because it's total dependency upon God.
0: Yes, my dad said at the end of his life, he said it's a great place to be. He said, Scott, one of the greatest places to be is when you're 100% dependent upon God in your life. He had cancer, terminal cancer, and he was in a place, it's just him and God, and that's a great place to be. And I can remember coming in at three in the morning and just seeing him worshiping God, how powerful of an experience that is. The doctors give you no hope. There's, you're coming to the end of your life. People are praying for your healing. But my dad is saying, wow, what an incredible place to be, 100% dependent upon God, within your life. Here, when we look at what Paul is going through, he's not facing life and death, but he's facing a situation in the Corinthian church that personally he's got a thorn in the flesh and God is not removing it. And what God is saying, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. Trust in me. This is not going away right now. But in your weakness, in your weaknesses, the power of Christ will dwell in you. Rely upon the power of the risen Lord, the Messiah that is within you. Verse 10, Paul says, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong." What came out of this experience of God not allowing the thorn in the flesh to be taken away, but allowing it to remain within Paul's life, then he comes to, I'm content with weaknesses. I'm content with what I'm going through, because when I am weak, then I am strong. How is he strong? Through the power of Christ that dwells within him. He has to rely upon Jesus Christ, his power, his authority that is within him to face this situation. Scott, I heard a, a story
1: from a pretty well-known pastor. He was talking about having an issue with breathing and lung things, and he was just praying, and, and he said eventually he was walking down the street and said, God, why can't you take this? Just take this away from me, and kind of got angry. And God said, you know, you don't see what I'm doing right now. And then he said, you know, he, was, he had to make choices of where he wanted to speak, and a lot of opportunities. And he said when he went to the ones that he knew God was leading him to, He would just get so much energy and the breathing would be so much easier and he would just walk away almost refreshed, even though he was going out and speaking and doing things that were hard at the time. But when when it was something that he wasn't sure of or he didn't really feel the leading but did it, It would just be this awful feeling and he would really struggle with it. So it was almost he saw it where God was guiding him and saying, you really have to rely on me and follow my leading and my anointing and and do the opportunities I want you to do. Because if you don't, you're going to have the struggle. But when you do it, you know, I'm going to be there with you and you're actually going to be stronger than you are through this weakness, and it was a powerful thing to hear him say, and I, I hope I I told that the right way. Basically, that thing he was going through was being used by God to show him really figure out if this is what, you know, God wants you to do, and then that's what you go forth and do um, with all these opportunities that you have in ministry.
0: Yes, and I can identify with that with my father the last year of his life. Intense pain, anyone that's had cancer and has metastasized and in the pain element and he was in constant pain. But he would say, when I would preach, teach, and pray for people, he was praying for people for healing and he was had terminal cancer. He would tell me, I do not have any pain at all. And that's very similar to what you're saying, Alan, about in our weaknesses, the power of Christ that dwells in us is becomes so real as we minister the gospel. And we minister the gospel in a way that we're dependent upon God. And what a beautiful thing. And this pastor that you're talking about could identify with that. My father could identify with that. He would say, as long as I was praying for people, as long as I was preaching and teaching, I didn't even know that I had any pain. But after the service, before the service, he had a lot of intense pain. But during that time, he saw the power of God being demonstrated through his weakness. Verse 11, Paul says, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. I had to bring myself into this foolish conversation here, is how I understand it. You yourselves com- compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the super apostles or the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. He's not trying to lift himself up. This is foolishness. But this whole problem with some of these men, that some of them are actually lending their ear to them, is causing Paul to be brought into this foolishness. But he's doing it for their sake. He doesn't want to deal with these men in the sense, or even giving them any credibility. They only have credibility because they have some type of following, and he loves them. He's like a father to children. He loves them. He brought them to the Lord. He says in verse 12, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance, by signs and wonders and miracles. So when you look at apostolic ministry, We understand from what Paul is saying here, a true apostle is one that has signs and wonders and miracles. God is backing them up, and the gospel is going forth, and the unsaved can see that what this person is saying is true because there are signs and wonders, and there are miracles. Now, think about this chapter, and for those that are listening, these other men that are not true apostles, he calls them false apostles— do not have signs and wonders and miracles because they're not true apostles. So they're probably making up these visions and these revelations to try to impress them by things that cannot be verified. A sign and a wonder and a miracle is something that only God can do. But to relate a vision to people, well, God told me this, God showed me this, God did this, who can verify that? That is not a sign, it's not a wonder, it's not a miracle. It's something you look at and say, okay, maybe that took place, but what is important does what they are saying, does it line up with the Word of God? So Paul was a true apostle. There were signs and wonders and miracles. They were there from the very beginning. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches? except that I myself did not become a burden to you. Forgive me this wrong. I love his sarcasm. He, he was not inferior, and he didn't treat them as inferior. But the one thing that he did not do is take money from them.
1: Yeah, you see Paul's frustration. He's, he's sort of saying, I'm, "I'm you've made me become foolish in this argument, and it's almost like he's he has to drop into this sort of, Teenage drama argument that shouldn't even be an argument. You know, it's like really, you know, you've seen, you know, what what my ministry has been. You've seen some miraculous things, you know, that we we read about in the Book of Acts, or I'm sure they've heard about, you know, the miracles and the things that have have been through Paul's ministry. Saying, how can you even entertain what these false apostles are saying? But I'll I'll go down that path with you. But because he loves them, you look at it. you could almost Paul could almost just ignore this and be like, I'm not even gonna insert myself into this argument. But he Sometimes, sometimes
0: yeah. we do that. We say, we're not even going to get involved. It's not worth my time.
1: Yeah, but but to him, the Corinthians are worth it. And, yes. and him going to this route and explaining it to them, I think really shows his love for them, that he's willing to just entertain this ridiculous accusation. But he cares about them, so he says, okay, I'm going to take the time to explain this to you, and and you're going to see him break it down, his weaknesses right. and, and, you know, what, makes him a true apostle and what God is looking for, and show the Corinthians those things because he cares about them, and that's
0: powerful to see his love for them in that that verse. He has to be amazed that some of them have been taken in under their authority. I mean, these are men that slapped them in the face. You better listen to me or I'll beat you up. These are men that do not have signs, wonders, and miracles. These are men that are probably trying to gain financially from them. Here's a man that never took an offering from them. And he says, forgive me of this wrong. You know, I should have. You should have taken care of my basic needs as I was ministering the gospel to you. But we didn't want to have an accusation against the gospel. Everything that he has ever done, he has done it for God's glory and to build up the body of Christ and the body of Christ in Corinth. He has loved them, continues to love them, continues to speak the truth in love, And why am I dealing with these men over here? How could they get a foothold into this church? You know, it's foolishness of how they act, what they represent. And when we get to the end of this chapter, they're probably having Gnostic background as well, because impurity, immorality, and sensuality is also coming out from these men. But I like what you said, Alan, about a father-child relationship, because the next verse brings that out. Verse 14, here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. The first time was in Acts chapter 18. He was there for a year and a half. Then we see there was a quick visit in which he went to them, and he wanted to come to them twice for quick visits, but only once, and he came under attack for not coming back. And now he's in Macedonia writing this letter, and he's ready to come back to them for a third time. Then he says, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you, for children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He says, when I come to you this time, I'm not going to ask you for anything, and I'm a father And you're the children. I'm a spiritual father. You are my spiritual children. And I would rather take care of you than you take care of me. Because that's how it works in a parent-child relationship. Verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? He said, I will gladly give to you. And I would gladly give you my life. And it's all for your souls, for your spiritual condition. I love you more. Am I to be loved less by you? Unfortunately, parents and children, when children are constantly receiving all the time, sometimes there comes a mindset of entitlement, and they don't appreciate what the parent has done for them. And, and Paul they, is saying, am I to be loved less because I'm ready to spend for you? Verse 16, but be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Now, he is probably quoting these false apostles. This is not a true statement that he is saying, but he's bringing out probably what has been said about him. Even though he never took anything from them, Ah, he's deceived them. He's crafty. He's up to something. Verse 17, Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? Not only did Paul not take advantage of them, there wasn't anyone that he sent to them that took advantage of them. They're working together in the same philosophy with the same mindset that we're doing this in a way that doesn't bring an accusation against the gospel. I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Again, we do not know who the brother is. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Question mark Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? All this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. This is not about them making a defense before them. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. We are doing this, speaking this, not that we have to make a defense before you, but we're doing this in the presence of God, and it's for the building up of the body of Christ in Corinth. Verse 20, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. He is saying, when I come, there is the potential that this gets out of hand, that you don't listen to what I am saying, and there is going to be chaos within the church at Corinth. It's very important that they read this letter, see the spirit behind the letter, see that this is coming from God, see that Paul represents God and bringing the gospel to them and listen to him. If not, there is going to be slander and tempers and disputes and jealousy and strife and disturbances and the gospel that has come to Corinth is going to be hindered. Now this last verse here, I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. If all of this takes place and there's disputes and anger and strife, the humiliation that's going to take place, that he comes before them, that God may humiliate me before you. And he's afraid of this. He's concerned that this could take place. Then he says, And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Now again, this is why I think this situation in the first letter, chapter 5, is at the forefront of what we're dealing with. This was the thing that he told the Corinthians that you must do, that could have started a problem where there were some people that started rebelling against Paul. When you get to the second letter at the beginning, the majority stood with Paul, and I believe that's dealing with First Corinthians chapter five. But there are false apostles that have come up that want to influence the people that are saying that what Paul was suggesting or telling us to do was wrong, and he's bringing division. And it almost seems like there is a Gnostic background type of believer that has arisen within the Corinthian church. Gnosticism separates your flesh from your spirit, your life from your faith, and it is something that we're going to deal with in Colossians and in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the Gospel of John. But there could have been a Hellenistic culture which was Gnostic within Corinth that was kind of coming to the surface here. And when they saw 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and they saw this man, and Paul is saying, put him out of the church because of his immorality, they could have started fighting against this because they could have been teaching, well, it's not important about what you do in your everyday life. What is important is that you have a knowledge of Christ, that you have a Christ consciousness And the reason why I say this, let's read this verse again. I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity and morality and sensuality which they have practiced. There could have been the beginning of Gnostic teaching here in the Corinthian church.
2: You think there's also a possibility maybe he felt it humiliating to mourn in front of people because this could actually bring you to tears or maybe just the fact that he was going to have to judge. Nobody really wants to come before a group and have to call people out and judge and that could cause mourning.
0: Think about this. If these men continue to grow in their influence and he comes before the Corinthian church, and he knows it's a spiritual battle. If you go back to chapter 10, they're already starting with the prayer, the spiritual battle. They're already going against the demonic forces that are going on. He could get there, and the people stand with these men, and he's going to be humiliated before them, and that's going to cause them to mourn. Because these men are going to bring slanderous accusations against Paul. There's going to be jealousy, strife, anger, angry tempers, disputes, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. They're going to tear up this church, and they're going to bring part of the church under their authority. And when he gets there, just think, he knows there is the possibility that the majority may stand against him. He's going to be humiliated. And what's going to take place? He's going to mourn, and he's going to mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and have not repented, and then he goes into the immorality. So again, I believe this is all going back to that 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that situation. How could that ever develop within the Corinthian church? The church knew about it. The church wasn't doing anything about it. They were allowing it to continue, and these people were identifying with Christ, and the whole body is being affected by this. So it could have been that these men had a part of that. Just leave it alone. They could have been saying, it's not that important. What is important is that they have a faith in Christ. They're talking about a head knowledge. Our faith in Christ should lead to a life that honors Christ. And the man was sleeping with his father's wife, and they were allowing that to continue. Paul says, Kick him out. In the first part of the second letter, the majority stood with him. And it seems like the man came to repentance for his sin. And praise God for this, that he did repent, and now it's a time to forgive him, it's a time to minister to him. And it became a powerful message to the church at Corinth. However, there are still some that are in the church that have not repented of the things in the past, and they're still teaching the same things, and it's going on. And Paul is concerned that when he comes, there are going to be people in the church that stand with him, and he's going to be humiliated, and he's going to mourn over them because of their sin. I would like to read again from chapter 10 of what he says about this spiritual battle. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive, to obedience of Christ. This is what Paul is doing right now before he gets to the church in Corinth. He's going to battle for them to break this bondage of these false teachers that are in the church. Even though he has a thorn in the flesh God has not removed it, and I believe it's speaking of these false teachers. But God's grace is sufficient, and in his weaknesses, the power of Christ is going to be revealed within him, and he's going to see victory. That is his mindset. That is what he's praying for. That is why he is writing this and going into a little bit of foolishness with them, because he's a father. They are his children. He is a spiritual father. They are spiritual children, and he's doing this for their sake, that they can be built up. So praise God for Paul's love for the Corinthian church. Praise God for people that have ministered to us, that have loved God, loved us, and they've loved us enough to bring the truth into our lives. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. I pray that this chapter will come alive to the people that are listening to it, that we will see what you are saying, what your word said to the Corinthians, Oh God. And Lord, it speaks to us today, and let us hear what you are saying to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you'd like to learn more about IGM or have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info@integritygm.com and connect with us on Instagram at integrity underscore global and Facebook at integrity global missions. If you like our podcast, please share it and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.